For that we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have come this morning not to worship God alone, but to enter into the worship that is ongoing, worshiping God. And worship is not about us. It's about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the primary way God is worshiped is by letting the light of the gospel shine in our hearts so that we can hear the word of God. Let the light shine this morning in your hearts so that you may hear the word of God. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 122. Psalm 122 is the text that we're going to be looking at today and next week. Um, This is the third song of ascents. God gave his people 15 songs that they were to sing as they made the way yearly to Jerusalem to worship God. Three times a year and, and even maybe even more so. And uh, Psalm 122 is the third, and as we've already seen, there's a progression, and this one, of course, is no exception. This progresses from what we, the, the, the previous two psalms, as we'll see this morning. So Psalm 122, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 this morning, so that's all I'm going to read. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 122, 1 through 4, let me invite you to stand together with me as we fellowship around God's word and hear his word. Hear now the word of our King. I was glad when they said to me... Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, in ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege and joy it is indeed to gather here this day. This day that you've called for us to lay aside the cares of the world and, and fellowship with you first corporately as a people and then um, informally as we leave from here. God, we pray you bless this time during this service, this, this time where you speak to us. And we, your servant, is, as Isaiah of old, say we simply listen. And Lord, we pray that in listening we would do more than be passive but we would be active listeners, uh, asking of this text, diving into this text, praying while we preach, while we study, um, for your spirit to illumine our hearts, that we would apply this text to our lives. God, do a work of grace, we pray this day in our lives and our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Years ago, I heard a sermon um, on worship which uh, changed the way I thought as a Christian. I was a college student, and um, as typical college students do, I I was used to spending Saturday night playing um, with my friends, whether it be racquetball or basketball, or we'd occasionally get together and sing and things like that, but we'd stay up late. And Sunday morning, we typically would arrive, and I would arrive, sleepy, distracted with my mind, consumed by what happened the previous evening. And that morning, in that sermon on worship, the preacher made this comment, supporting it with Scripture, 
but made this, this uh, comment in terms of the focus of worship, made this comment about this present generation of Christians. And his comment was, this present generation of Christians worships their work, works at their play, and play at their worship. And I realized that was me. Talk about uh, convicting. I was playing at worship. If I was serious about worship as I became, I realized how you worship Sunday morning is predicated on what you do Saturday night. In fact, I, I remember during this time, uh, there was a radio a personality sharing how he was over in Israel and he got on the, the bus and it was a couple days before Sabbath and all the Jews were talking about what they were doing in preparation. What are you doing uh, for Sabbath? What are you doing uh, for Sabbath? And he felt uh, convicted. God's people who know Jesus Christ, we've got the Lord of glory and yet we play at our worship. And that ought not to be, brothers and sisters. We must be a people who work at our worship. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life is worship God. And thus we need to work at it. We need to train ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves. It's the most important thing. Isaiah 43, 6, B through 7 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who I've called by name, whom I have created for my glory. Do you know God made you to worship him? That's why you were made. We were made to exalt and glorify Christ, to make Christ center in our lives, not just corporately, but throughout the entire week. Philippians 3.3, Paul defines a Christian. He says, for we are the true circumcision, as opposed to the false circumcision of Judaism. We are the true circumcision, and the next thing he says is, who worship. You know what defines us as people? It's not our jobs. It's not our wealth. It's not how we look. It's not our beauty. It's not our stage in life. It's not our sin. It's not our weaknesses and the things that we do in darkness. None of that defines us before God. What defines us is the call he's given to you and me upon redemption to be worshipers of Christ. That's what we are. Way before we are, name it. We are worshipers of Christ. Who then, the text goes on, who worship in the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we, we not only are worshipers of Christ, but we are people who exalt Jesus Christ in our lives. That's a definition of a Christian. We want Christ to be exalted, Christ to be the focus, Christ to receive all glory, honor, and praise, Christ to be that which moves us. That's what we're after, Philippians 3.3. And that is why John, when he wrote these these words in John 3, he must increase and I must decrease. He had it right on. Brothers and sisters, do you know the best thing that could ever happen to you in your life right now is for you to come to a greater apprehension, understanding, comprehension of who your God is. The greatness of his being. uh, uh, Nell's just... uh, I read it. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in mirror the glory of the Lord, as we behold the glory of the Lord, what happens? The greatness, his character, we are transformed into the same image. We grow in sanctification not by determining to do more. We grow in our sanctification when we behold the greatness and the glory of Christ and learn to worship him better. C.S. Lewis wrote these great words in mere Christianity. God made us. 
invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. You know, most of us fuel our walks with God, or better yet, do we fuel our walks with God? But when we do, we fuel them on name it, on, on, on the latest theological trends or, or whatever. Brothers and sisters, we are fueled as we come to a greater apprehension in relationship with Christ, learning to worship him, enjoy him, take delight in him. That's your call. Way before you were called to be a human doing, you're called to be a human being, and that being is in relationship with Christ. And that's the focus of Psalm 122. Psalm 122 comes on the heels of 120, which begins the Songs of Ascents. Presuming we're pilgrims living in a foreign land, Psalm 120, recall, was the impetus for worship. When we're burdened by the things of this life, where do we go? We tend to usually horizontally, we go to the bottle, we go to the gym, we go to gossiping, we go to our friends. Where do we go? Psalm 120 says we go to the Lord. That's the only place that we can go. Then with that, so that, that leads us to want to go worship, Psalm 120. Well, 121 comes along and says, picks up from the burdens of this world and presumes or anticipates a question. And that question is, on the way to, to Jerusalem, the journey's rough and hard and we're hurting ourselves. Why is God ordaining such difficulty? Does God not care about me? That's the question. Psalm 121 answers by saying, brothers and sisters, God cares for you more than you could ever know. God's sovereign care in your life does not um, keep us from, from, from trials and difficulties, Psalm 121. The, what, what God promises is this good, glorious being promises to go with us through them. All right? That being the case, Psalm 122, David arrives in Jerusalem. The pilgrim now arrives in Jerusalem. What's the song we're called to sing? And that's... Psalm 122. And the whole point of it, you've got the title there, a call to a life devoted to worship. Notice with me verse 1 and 2, the priority of worship as, it, as it's uh, presented here. He begins, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now that's the first verse, but in time it's not the first event. Because this is poetry, this is, as we'll see, this verse has to start this psalm. But the first, in terms of time verse, is verse 2. Look at verse 2. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. What's the first thought that came to the mind of the pilgrim? What's the first thought that should come to the mind of the pilgrim when once they enter Jerusalem? Well, we might think you're living out in the bush. You're living out in the diaspora. You're not, I mean, some might be living in Babylon, but, but, but most were not living in major cities. So to come to Jerusalem in that day for, for God's people was a monumental event. I mean, you're seeing a city that was so amazing and a temple that, 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 that was beyond imagination. It would be so easy to go to Jerusalem and go, the first thing I, you know, that I'm going to do is I want to stock up on supplies. I want to go see the walls. I want to go do all these different things. You know the first thing that came to David's mind in this psalm? 
Well, the first thing God wants us to, to work at when it comes to entering Jerusalem was what? I want to worship. I want to, wor- I want to go to the house of the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, that's an incredible statement when you realize Jerusalem was a magnificent feat. You know, the foundation stones, you remember Matthew 20, uh, what is it, 24? The disciples are walking with Christ, and we read that, that Jesus came out from the temple, was going away, when the disciples came up to point out the temple buildings. The stones were 12 by 12 by 40 feet, which is basically the size of this stage. One foundation stone of the temple was that large. So they were walking, they were in awe, and what David says That is not what should drive you when you enter Jerusalem. The first thing that should drive you, the thing that should just overwhelm you, is the glorious privilege of worshiping the Lord. And that's what I want you to to see here in verse 1. The house of the Lord, see it? Mark that phrase. Um, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That's in the emphatic position in verse 1. It could be rather translated, to the house of the Lord, let us go. It's in the emphatic uh, position. That's the emphasis of verse 1. But it's also the emphasis in verse 1 and verse 9. Look at your, the psalm. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Verse 9, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is, this is a literary tool that the Jews used in Hebrew to emphasize. This is known as inclusio. So last week I taught you um, about mirisms. And mirisms is where you talk about night and day and everything in between. Inclusio is where you reference the, the bookends. And the bookends dictate how you understand what's in the middle. So for example, Matthew 11, or Mark 11 is a classic um, inclusio. Christ curses the fig tree. He goes to the temple, cleanses it. And comes back out, and then they, they, they make a commentary on the, the fig tree, how, it, how it's now wilted. Well, that inclusio is designed to have you and I understand as a reader, we have to interpret the temple cleansing in light of the cursing of the bush or the tree. That's the literary tool of inclusio. That's what's going on here. This whole psalm, because it's an inclusio, house of the Lord, house of the Lord, is all about the house of the Lord. Every verse is all about it. Now, if you look at 2 through verse 8, he doesn't mention it again. So you might be tempted when you're reading this from the first time to think this psalm's about Jerusalem. It's not. It's about the worship of God in the place of Jerusalem in that worship. Okay? So this psalm is all about the worship of God, and rightly so, because it reflects the emphasis and the focus of all of redemptive history. Do you know that the fall revolved around worship? What is worship? Giving um, the worth, proclaiming, living light of the worth of God, the glory, the weightiness of God. Adam had a choice in the garden. Would he live in light of the glory of God's word, which said, obey? Will you obey, or will you live in light of your own will? They chose their own will. That's worship, brothers and sisters. They chose to worship themselves rather than worship God. The first sin after the first sin, Cain and Abel. What did that argument, or what was that murder about? Worship. Genesis 4. When, they, when, when God brought his people out of the Exodus, why did he bring them out? Exodus chapter uh, 8, verse 1. Go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may worship me. Brothers and sisters, the Exodus was all about worshiping God. 
When God's people camped in the wilderness, do you know what they put at the heart of the camp? All of the tribes were to be, um, um, uh, their tents were to be uh, set up surrounding the tabernacle. The heart of God's people was to be worshipped in the wilderness. Now, I could go on and on and on. Age of the, the priests. You could become a soldier at 20. You could become a servant of the uh, temple at 25. But you, get, but you had to be 30. The most highest requirement to serve in, uh, formally in that day was for worship. Okay? I go on and on and on. But, brothers and sisters, would you notice the reason Christ came to the earth? Why did he come and redeem? Matthew or John 4, 23, as Christ said, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth for such the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Why did Jesus Christ come? What was the redeeming work of Christ all about? It was about bringing true worshipers to God. Now, brothers and sisters, I hope you're hearing this and not tuned out. We identify ourselves as, 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 as what we typically do. We, we define ourselves on what we do as Christians. And we might think, what do we do? I am, as a Christian, I'm a student of God's word. As a Christian, I'm a man or a woman of theology. I love studying theology. As a Christian, I'm about evangelism. I'm about music. I'm about name the things that you and I identify ourselves with. Or sadly, I'm a sinner or a horrible wretch. Though I'm saved, I keep doing horrible things. Brothers and sisters, we define ourselves in a broad, broad swath. Scripture defines you by one word, worship. You were created to exalt, to glorify God. That's what you are. We are priests. What do you think the priesthood of the believer means? It means that we are, we are called and equipped and created to be worshipers of God. Understand that, brothers and sisters. That's your identity. That's what we're about. In our parenting, we're not about our kids being good kids. We're about our kids and their weaknesses learning to trust Christ. Right? In our marriages, we're not about our wives doing certain things, men, or our wives, I'm sorry, or wives, our husbands doing certain things, but we're about in our, fail to, our, our failures and weaknesses. It's all about Christ. Pointing to Christ, recognizing my wife is a sinner just like me. And we both together by ourselves meet Christ. Brothers, we are worshipers. That is, uh, sisters, that's what we are. That's what life is about as a Christian. You put off, I'm a, I'm a sports person. I'm an I'm a, I'm a arts person. I'm a name, all the different things you may have identified yourself prior to being saved or, or as you grew up. What are you? When you became a Christian, whether you realize it or not, you became a worshiper of God. That's what we are. And so why this emphasizes, so, so hence, this emphasizes that fact. We are worshipers. Now that being said, he then uh, transitions to make some points about Jerusalem. And the point of Jerusalem is a teaching tool to help us understand worship. How to protect it how to encourage it, how to um, uh, um, uh, um, help people in the body to be better worshipers. That, so all of what's going on in between verse 1 and 9, which is focusing on Jerusalem, is all about worship. Okay? So would you notice with me verse 2, Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, this is the center of this psalm. Notice with me verse 5. 
What's he talk about? He talks about the house, the thrones of the house of David. Now, David didn't build the temple. He built, he claimed Jerusalem. That's Jerusalem. So the center spot of this psalm, so linguistically, we got another tool here. The Hebrew uh, poetry typically puts what they're focusing on, the important thing, in the middle of the poem. So here it's the town, ta- I'm sorry, it's uh, the city, Jerusalem. So we're to view Jerusalem as the means of worship, verse 1, verse 9. We're called to worship, this is what we're about, but the temple is going to teach us about, or the city is going to teach us about this incredible calling. Now, that being the case, what's Jerusalem? The Bible uses it three different ways. Now, I referenced this. At this time, when, when this psalm was written, it would have been the city, and God's people would have understood that. But the true Jew would have understood the city was far more than just the city. Because the word Jerusalem is also used in the New Testament when the focus was off of Jerusalem. Think of it. When, when 70 AD came, man, Jerusalem was destroyed. Right? So what, what is Jerusalem for God's people? Jerusalem for God's people, if you would, turn to Galatians 4 if, you, if you're in your Bibles or in your electronic devices. Go to Galatians 4 and follow along with me. Notice with me Galatians 4, verses 24 through 26. Listen to how Paul uses Jerusalem. He's speaking about Hagar and Sarah as metaphors to share the gospel, okay? Um, Because the Jews were saying, we're of Abraham, we're his sons. And Paul's saying, you're right. You're the sons through Hagar, not Sarah. Okay, quite an incredible shocker, all right? That being said, he says this. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, she's Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So when you think of Jerusalem, you can think of it as the institution established on this earth of works righteousness. Salvation by works. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, mark that, is free, okay? That's the city we enter into upon salvation. He's talking about salvation, guys. When you're saved, you enter into a city, and that city is the Jerusalem above. She is our mother. So we can take Jerusalem. So we take this psalm. You go, Greg, the Jer- Jerusalem is no longer our focus as Christians, and, and by 70 AD, it was gone for 2,000 years about. I mean, what, what, you know, how do you take this psalm? Well, you take this psalm because this psalm is, is, is focusing on Jerusalem, but we take it in the uh, understanding it from the New Testament uh, perspective, which is what? Salvation. The Jerusalem which is the center and focus of this psalm, is your relationship with Christ. The saving relationship you have with God. That we have with God. That's the focus of this psalm, which leads to the worshiping brackets. Okay? So think of that motion. All right? Um, and hence, it's used, and, and just by way of footnote, there's a temple in the New Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem above, and that temple is you and me, Ephesians. I'm not going to read Ephesians 2. We also can speak of, the, of a Jerusalem as the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. I'm not going to read it because of time. That is talking about what we become. We're the bride of Christ, the New Jerusalem, and the New Heavens and the New Earth. So, but on this side of the grave, we're taking this psalm. I'm going to suggest this psalm is best applied by looking at the New Jerusalem. Okay, last psalm, Psalm 120, 
122, uh, 1, I was suggesting the, the new Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem above, but the new Jerusalem, what we're all heading for at the new heavens and the new earth. But this psalm is best applied when we look at Jerusalem and think of our corporate redemption. That's the new, or that's the, that's the Jerusalem above. So we have the earthly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, salvation, what we enter into by grace through faith in Christ alone, and then we have the new Jerusalem, what we're going to enter into in the new heavens and the new earth. The focus here is that I'm going to give you is the Jerusalem above. Now, that being said, notice with me verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That word glad, important word, samah, Samach, actually, in the Hebrew, um, speaks of rejoice, of a rejoicing that encompasses the totality of our lives. So this is an important word. David begins by saying this, God's worship is so important, it now is driving everything in my life. That's the word. I was glad. I was, everything in my life at that moment was driven by the worship of God. Notice the definition that Harris gives. The root samah carries, uh, 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 denotes being glad or joyful with the whole disposition as indicated by its association with the heart, the soul, and with the lighting up of the eyes. So brothers and sisters, we're talking here about a worship that you and I need to work at so that it becomes that which encompasses and drives our entire life. No longer do you worry about, um, oh, did I, did I fail there? Or did I not do that? Or did people honor me? Now we're focusing on, am I offering acceptable worship to God seven days a week, 24 hours a day? Because we are priests of the Lord. That's the idea here. His whole life was filled with the worship of God. And therefore, when he got to Jerusalem, he didn't think of going to the market and, and, and uh, you know, uh, treasuring up or stocking up on all the supplies that we need in the, out in the diaspora. He didn't think of going to the market and seeing his long-lost friends. He didn't think of going and visiting the seminary he once grew up in. He didn't think of all the different things you, you and I might horizontally think of in going to this city. No, he thought of one thing. I'm in my, I just stepped foot in. Now let's worship God. Incredible. And brothers and sisters, if you look at the flow of this, of, of, the, of the songs of ascents, that, that is right where we need to be. Psalm 120 says, we're burdened. What's the answer? I want worship. Psalm 121, don't be frightened. God is with you. Psalm 122, you've entered Jerusalem. Now what are you going to do? I'm going to worship. Brothers and sisters, that is the answer to the burdens of life. It's a beautiful trilogy here. That's the culmination. That's where you want to run when the hardships of life come upon you. The worship of God. Whether it be individually or corporately, the worship of God. You see that same impulse throughout Scripture. Mary and Martha, when their brother died and they heard Jesus was near, what did they do? Well, John eleven twenty. 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. And then when Martha, when Mary heard about it later, that Christ was near, we read, and when she heard it, she rose quickly and was coming to him. What was their desire, brothers and sisters? When you're hurting, what do you do? You go to Christ. You want to sit at his feet. 
You want to fellowship with your Savior. You want to take up refuge in the name of the Lord, as the psalmist says. It's a strong tower. His name means character. His character, who he is. Asaph, you see it with him. After coming to the end of himself and his struggle over what, what, what he perceived to be, to be the iniquity of the world in which we lived, he wrote these words. But as for me, the nearness of, of, of God is my good. I've made, the God, I've made the Lord God my refuge. Where did he want to go when he struggled with, it's not fair, God. He clinged to God. You see it in Paul's Philippians 3, beholding the emptiness and shallowness of earthly commendation. Whatever things were gained in me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than I count all things to be lost in view of the, of the surpassing value of knowing, fellowshipping, worshiping Christ Jesus my Lord. And that was David, Psalm 122. That's the pilgrim. God wants us to sing a song to teach our souls that when you are heavy burdened, heavy laden, when life isn't going the way that you want, there may be things in you that says everything within me wants to gossip. Everything within me wants to get even. Everything within me wants to run. Brothers and sisters, this song, and it's to be sung. And why? Because in singing, if you listen to the words and focus on the words, by singing it, 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 it um, um, gets it deep within your soul. Sing this song, brothers and sisters. Learn to sing this song. Practice this song. Work on this song. What's the song? That when you are burdened with life, the only answer is to worship at the feet of your Savior. You say, but my problem is God. I'm still in Psalm 121. He's ordained hard things in my life. That's my problem. Brothers and sisters, what better place to go than to go to him? When you're struggling with God, why are you doing what you're doing? The worst place to go would be to talk to brothers and sisters who are, and you and I will do what we do. We don't go to the brothers and sisters who are going to say, don't talk like that. We're going to go to the brothers and sisters and say, yeah, you ought to be mad. God let you down. Brothers and sisters, where do you go? You go to the Lord. You lay him before the Lord. You pour your heart out before the Lord. You say, God, this is not fair. This is my life. Take me, mold me. Holy Spirit, change me from within. That's what true worshipers are. That's what we do. And you've got to work at that. That's not something you'll do naturally. That's the opposite than what you, that you'll want to do. When you struggle, when you are burdened by the things of this life, the natural thing to do is to handle it in your own strength. But brothers and sisters, the call is to worship. Go to the feet of Christ and pour your heart out. That's this psalm. Now, the provisions of this worship. God gives us those. Verses 3 through 5, he focuses now, David focuses on the metaphor of Jerusalem and its role in the worship of God. Notice the first one. An illustration, well, notice first, the provision of worship, the provision is connectionalism, unity. You know, explain that. Well, illustrations, he gives two of them. Notice with me verse 2. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built is a city that is compact together. That word in the Hebrew, compact, havard, means to join or unite two or more things together, making them one. It's the same word used to refer to the, to the temple curtains that were sewn together to make them one in the tabernacle or in the temple. 
okay? They're so beautifully sown, they look like one thing. David here is saying this. When you come upon Jerusalem for the first time from a distance, you're on a little high mountain, you can see it, it looks like it's one unit. Unlike a lot of cities in the ancient world, this was compacted together. It was united. Do you know the walls that surrounded Jerusalem were eight feet thick? So first thing you'd see, these massive walls, impenetrable walls. And then if you looked over, you'd see what looked like a maze. You didn't see individual houses. You saw whole lines of houses where one began and one ended. You couldn't know. From a distance. So if you did for if you did manage to break through those walls to get to the temple to burn it, you'd have to go through a maze. And the idea behind the picture of Jerusalem being compacted together is that this is the protection of God's worship. The temple is protected by this beautiful city, which seems like it's just this, this really dense, compacted um, um, architectural wonder okay it's not it didn't have have this spread out right the urban uh what's that called sprawl i almost said drawl the urban drawl the urban sprawled it wasn't sprawled it was really compact and that was the protection of the temple that was the protection of the worship of god now as we apply that when you look at jerusalem what's jerusalem above Jerusalem above is our salvation. And what does our salvation do for you and me? It compacts us together. You want to to provide for the worship of God in your life? Compact yourself together in salvation. And what that means is stop viewing people as, well, let's see, that's a blue collar. That's white collar. That's a jerk who hurt me last month. That's a black person. And that's an Asian. And that's, stop thinking of those things. Understand that which compacts us together is the common salvation you and I have in Jesus Christ. You know what unites me to you? I mean, honestly, guys, I grew up as a jock, a dumb jock, really. Um, That was me. And I have spent, in my ministry, I've spent glorious evenings with some of the nerdiest people I can imagine in my life, okay? If you had told me 30 years, or more than that, 40 plus years ago, you're going to spend a wonderful evening with these nerds, I would have thought, no way. But, well, you know why I can do that? Because they're not nerds. They're brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's what unites me to you. That's what unites me t- to me. Oh, yes, we might have our differences, but, what? but those differences are, are insignificant in comparison to what unites us in Christ. And that's the commonness, the compactness of Jerusalem. Do you understand when you were saved, you were brought to a city that was so compact and tight that that which identifies us is our, wor- our corporate worship in response to the redeeming grace of of Christ in our lives. That's it. That's what compacts us together. Now, he takes Jerusalem and looks at it from another angle, verse 4. So not only is it compact, verse 3, notice verse 4a, still speaking of Jerusalem, David said, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, in ordinance of Israel. From this perspective, he's looking at Jerusalem as that, that David used, David wrote this psalm, he used Jerusalem as that which, which unified the nation. That's what he's focusing on here. 
All the tribes, regardless of the tribe that you're in, they all have one thing in common. They go up. All of them go up to, the ten, to this city to worship. Okay? So uh, Kidner wrote these words. The unity was never meant to be uniform. Israel was a family of tribes, each with its well-marked character, uh, character. But the ties were more than those of blood or convenience. These were the tribes of the Lord. And Jerusalem was where they were to meet him, not simply one another. So think of it, brothers and sisters. When David became king, Israel was divided. It was divided by tribes. Ephraim was the massive tribe in the north. They thought they were the most the hot to do, the, the ones that everyone should bow to. Dan was even way beyond them. And you have all these tribes in the north, south, each have their own history. You can say, well, they have the joint history of the, of, the, of the Exodus. Yeah, but the judges took place and each had their own history of the, of the, these, this tribe which hated the Philistines. This tribe hated the uh, uh, Canaanites. These tribes, they all had their own history. They, they were having their own burgeoning cultures. The nation under Saul was a divided nation. And when David became king, it was also even divided along king lines, like I'm of Saul, I'm of David. There was a mess. So when David was pronounced king, he knew it was just a a momentary ceasefire. So what's the first thing he did? He conquered a Jebusite city whose name was Salem. And that's the Hebrew word for peace. And the first thing he did is he renamed it. Guess what he renamed it to? Jerusalem, which is the foundation, the bedrock of our peace. This is what's going to create peace amongst all of our tribes. Jerusalem. Boyce wrote it this way. Jerusalem became a Jewish city and and achieved biblical prominence under uh, King David, who wrestled it from the Jebusites and made it both his political and religious capital. He made it a a political center by constructing his palace under the governmental buildings there. He made it the Jews' religious center by bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, a story told at length in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. It was placed within the relocated tabernacle. Later, Solomon built the glorious golden temple, which uh, David had wanted to build, and the Ark was placed in his most holy place. The temple thus became the center of the city, which was the center of the nation. So, by choosing it as his capital, David chose a city that would belong to the entire nation. Here people from each of the tribes who go up and know that, that he or she belonged to one united people. That's the emphasis of verse 4. People from Judah and Benjamin, Dan, Ephraim, Manasseh, Reuben, and Naphtali, from all of the tribes. And so when David thought of worship, he said, you know what? I want to now help you be better worshipers. And the way we do that is that we got to realize that we have one thing in common. And that one thing in common is Jerusalem. At the heart of Jerusalem is the temple. Well, brothers and sisters, as New Covenant Christians, what do we have one thing in common? It's redemption. And the heart of our redemption is the worship of Jesus Christ, his person, for what he is and what he's done. That's the heart. Now, when these two are sinking in sync, when that becomes our focus, notice what happens. Verse 4b, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, and and ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now comes worship. But it comes as you and I understand that you and I are not defined by our individuality. We got to lay that aside which means your strengths, your weaknesses, your likes, your dislikes, your loves, your habits, all that's laid aside. 
we lay aside the individuality that what might that that we might be united around our commonness and that commonness is the bedrock the foundation of peace and that's the saving relationship we have with Jesus Christ now that's not to say that we don't uh, appreciate the uniqueness of, of each other, the gifts and abilities he, God's given us. Clearly, we do listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? So we recognize, we rejoice over the fact that, man, you've got the gift of compassion. Hey, that's wonderful. I don't, I don't feel threatened by that. Maybe in our sin we do, but we ought not to be threatened by that. That's wonderful. You got the gift of compassion. You got the gift of helps. You got the gift of service. You got the gift of teaching. You got the name it. We rejoice. We recognize that. But when we come together, what defines us is not what we are in terms of gifting, what we do, what's going on in the horizontal. We lay all that aside because when we gather together to enhance our worship as a married couple, as a family, as a church family, okay, as siblings, what unites us is the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's the Jerusalem above. Now, why that's important, brothers and sisters, because there are so many winds blowing horizontally through the church at any time. When I entered the gospel ministry, those winds were homeschool. Churches divide over homeschooling, Christian school and public schooling. Those winds were music, right? The worship wars. Those winds were theonomy. When I first entered into ministry, that may not mean anything to most of you. For some of you, I know you'll remember the church was being rocked by theonomy. Those are all the horizontal winds that we want to identify around. We split churches over theonomy. We split churches over our schools. We split churches over, name it. And today, the same thing's going on. You know what? The broad evangelical church, of which we are a part. So I'm not pointing the finger at them. I'm looking at us. When I point at them, I got three fingers pointing at Bethel. Right now, the latest wind is social justice. Black Lives Matter. Woke and all the other things. And brothers and sisters, do you realize how dangerous those things are? And I'm including homeschool and all of that there. How dangerous those things are when they become what define us. We're a, we're a social justice church. You've just destroyed your worship. We're a, church, we're a homeschool church. You just, destroy, you just destroyed your worship. Because the moment you make much of our individuality, you're not making much of God anymore. Worship is all about making much of God. And the only thing that we have in common is the glorious redemption we have in sharing Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, this passage is very clear. We're all about worship. The song he wants us to sing, and this doesn't mean you go home now and passively sing it. You've got to take these notes, review them, more than the notes. This passage, this psalm, study it and come to understand your identity as a servant, as a sinner in, the, in, in God's kingdom. My identity is not my sin or the things I do or the, or the way or the winds of, of, of whatever's going on in our culture. What identifies Bethel Presbyterian Church, what identifies Greg's Thurston family, what identifies me and my siblings is our relationship with Christ. That's it. 
Now, that, we're only to verse 4. David has a whole lot more to say about this, this Jerusalem and the unity we have in Christ in our worship by redeeming grace, in which we're going to return to next week. But for now, brothers and sisters, let me exhort you. Take off the hats of whatever hats you've been wearing and put on worshiper of God by virtue of the redeeming grace of Christ. And as long as you've been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, whether you believe Black Lives Matter is an important movement, social justice, whether you believe, name it, Brother and sister, that doesn't divide us, and that should not divide us. What should divide us is when you believe you're saved because of what you do. That will cause a problem in our unity. But to, and that's, that's why in the Lord's uh, Supper, what is the qualification for taking the Lord's Supper? Right? It's being a true worshiper of God by virtue of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That language is foreign to us. We don't take the meal. Because this, Jerusalem, unites us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and this incredible psalm and its place in this song of ascent. So early in our journey were we to learn this message. And yet, Father, sadly for so many, it's a message never learned. God, I pray you'd give us grace to appreciate the unique individuals that are seated next to us in you. Lord, to praise you for their strengths and the gifts that you've given them. But Lord, to look with mercy and kindness upon each other because we ourselves are the chief of sinners, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may that glorious salvation be that which unites us. Not our age, not our life stage, not our politics, not our, 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 our habits, not our, not our personal strengths or weaknesses, but Jesus Christ him crucified, and the glorious calling to make much of you in our lives. God, we pray, work that work of grace at Bethel. Work that work of grace in this world. May your name be hallowed in the churches that call you by name, that you would be that unifying principle, you, your character, your redeeming grace, and nothing else. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for giving us life in Jesus. Thank you for giving us, bringing us to the, uh, uh, to the Jerusalem above by which we enjoy a, a saving relationship with you worked out with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.